The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 52 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub. Com. So we got a big show last week with one of the most successful cybersecurity executive recruiters in the world, Matt Comins from Caldwell Partners. And I was so happy to have him on the show with us, taking it to the house last week with tens of thousands of views on social media and another record week in terms of listenership. It's fantastic. So thank you very much. I know I keep thanking you out there, but you know how much I appreciate you listening to the show. Once we started talking about the cybersecurity talent crisis, and we started doing it with someone of the professional stature of Matt Comins, he's got like E.F. Hutton around here last week. When Matt Comins talks, people listen. They really do listen to the guy, and they should. You know, most of you young folks out there probably don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but that's okay. The point is that Matt knows his business, and his business is cybersecurity talent. So the great thing about the show last week is that Matt often thinks of himself as an educator, and in a lot of ways, so do I, and that's kind of what we do on the show. And in this case, part of the education is how to navigate this complex and sometimes mysterious cybersecurity environment that we're all in, or we're trying to get in, in what may possibly be in my opinion, the most difficult challenge for cybersecurity executives to overcome, and that is how incredibly hard it is to find good talent. It's just really, really hard out there. So the great thing about the show last week is that Matt often uh, talks about mentoring, and he talks about how important mentoring is, and I think a lot of you that are either interested in mentoring or reverse mentoring should go back and listen to this show. Now, sometimes when I think about mentoring younger folks and how to manage their career, I think back to this one time when I was at JPMorgan Chase, and, and, and I was at Chase, and, and I had a group of interns, and there was this very, very senior gentleman over there who will remain unnamed for the purposes of this discussion that I took this large group of interns 
to hear him talk and to hear, you know, he would mentor them. And I did this every year. This was like a regular thing for me to do. And I was really excited to be involved with the young analysts and the interns in the, in the, uh, in the department. And one of the things that the senior individual told them was not to worry about managing your careers. Just don't worry about that. Just go to your desk, you know, keep your head down, work as hard as you can, you know, work 12 hours a day and everything's just going to fall into place for you. And, and I got to be honest with you, man, I just got to, I, I almost stroked out when I heard him say that to these people. And, and I just think that in my opinion, that was not, that was not the thing to be telling these young people about managing their careers and seeking out opportunities and maximizing their potential and maximizing their, uh, their compensation, their income, their opportunity, their sense of purpose, right? In the corporate world, you know, I didn't then, and I don't believe now that someone was just going to miraculously come up to your desk one day and offer you that dream job that you've always been dreaming about. That's just not going to happen that way. I mean, come on, man. I mean, the world just doesn't work like that, right? So whether you're a young person just learning how to navigate this environment or you're a senior executive who listens to this show looking to optimize your earning potential while maintaining that sense of purpose that we all talk about and strive for, right? I know there's a lot of people striving for that sense of purpose in, in their lives. I know I do. You should listen to last week's show with Matt Coleman. So you can listen to it anytime on playback, wherever you are in the world, folks. That's Matt Comins, Managing Director of Caldwell Partners on last week's episode. That's episode number 51 of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you're listening to us live right now on Voice America, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, or you might be just wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 episodes, not just Matt's episode last week on episode number 51, but anyone, and we got you know, 51 episodes up there right now. There's a lot of material. There's a lot of different guests on there. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you'll get all your options. Check us out. TF7 Radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please don't forget to subscribe. I see our subscriptions going up, and I really appreciate it, man. It means a lot. We check it out. So we love it when you subscribe. So we have another tier one guest for you tonight on the show. And we're going to have Mike Higgins on the show with us tonight. And I'm really excited to have Mike on the show with us because, hey, look, most people in the information security business know who Mike is. I've known Mike for uh, quite, a, quite a long time now. Um, it's been a really long time uh, since I've known him and we've been friends and we see each other at events. But his resume includes the former chief security officer of LexisNexis, the former chief security officer of the New York Times, and the former vice president and chief information security officer of NBC Universal Media, among a bunch of other accomplishments that he's had. He's a very accomplished and senior tier one executive, and that's the kind of professionals we roll with here on Task Force 7 Radio. So Mike is also a visiting professor at Northeastern University and the University of Virginia, and is, he is one of the most respected cybersecurity professionals in the business. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Higgins. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It was, uh, I, I, the check is in the mail for an introduction like that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, brother. So look, Mike, you got a really storied career. Tell us 
a little bit about yourselves. I know our, our listeners are probably wondering, you know, how you, you know, how you went from one job to the next and how you've had such a storied career and you've been so successful. Tell us the secret. Um, George, it started, uh, oh God, almost 30 years ago. Um, uh, I was in the Defense Intelligence Agency where I stood up the very first uh, CERT, the DOD CERT back in the day. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but I transitioned out of the government to uh, consulting, uh, stood up the first uh, incident response group um, for commercial businesses with a company called SCIC, and then just did uh, a bunch of uh, consulting businesses into most of the big banks because back in the day, they were the guys that got it first. Uh, you know, they're protecting real money. Um, so it was the uh, groups like Citibank, Merrill Lynch, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, branched down into high technology companies, Intel, Sun Microsystems, uh, Amdahl, uh, and a lot of different high tech companies. Um, and then I was approached one day um, uh, by a, an old friend of mine who, uh, following the um, notification bill from California, uh, he had a breach at a company called LexisNexis, and he wanted to hire us, uh, and it turned from hiring us to hiring me. Uh, so that's how I did the transition from consultant uh, back into becoming a CISO. So this is interesting. So you, you worked in, in the Defense Department as an Intel analyst, and so you went into the private sector as a consultant. How was that transition working for you? I mean, was it hard to, you know, a lot of people have that, have a problem coming from the government into, into the corporate sector, into the private world. It, it was really tough. Um, it's just like going from the private world into the government. Um, you, you have a challenge in communications. Um, there's a lot of things that were in DOD at the time that were prescriptive. And when you get into industry, it was very much not the world. Uh, okay. People did what they wanted to. Um, there was a lot of flexibility. Uh, the dollar, you know, it's, it's what's the profit motive in the government versus what's the profit motive in industry. It's real simple in industry, but in the government, it's real hard to understand at times. So making that transition, understanding their lingo uh, from a government lingo uh, was probably the, the biggest hurdle to get over. But once you got it, um, they listened to you, uh, especially if you understood that security, and I've understood this, I guess, from the very beginning, security has been and will always be a sales job. Um, you're going against the natural proclivity of people to do the easiest operations possible to get their job done. And that isn't natural. Uh, people don't want additional security in whatever they do. They don't want to have five steps when they know that one step will get them to where they want to be. So you have to sell them on the idea that it's in not only the business's best interest, but also in their personal best interest to follow the rule sets. Um, like I said, when I joined, especially at the, at the nth degree, when I joined NBC, here is a media and entertainment company. Security wasn't even on, you know, their radar screen. Uh, they had a small security force there for about the 120,000 identities they had across the company, but a very small security force, about a dozen people. And right. they were completely underwater. Hmm. So you come, out of, you come out of the government, you go to consulting in the early days, and then you, you become a CISO. And was that a natural progression for you, or was there some specific reason that you migrated to these senior executive spots? I know you said there was a breach. Maybe you were in the right time at the right place. Uh, I mean, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I was at the time I was teaching at George Washington. I was teaching in their master's program for um, information security, and I was teaching incident response. 
So that's why they approached me because I had been not only teaching incident response, but I had been doing incident response in many of the big banks and high technology companies. Uh, But the big frustration is in general consulting work is that um, you never see a project through. You see a project to the point where it's steady state, you hand it off to the business and then you walk away. And if you go back in six months to a year, you find out that the project died on the vine because the champion within the business either didn't adopt it as much as you would like them to, or there was no champion in the business and the entire initiative just failed. And that was the frustration. So when they approached me and said, do you want to try running this for a change? Uh, And I've been running, obviously, from the consulting side, running an internal business with a P&L. I thought, well, here's a chance for me to actually see a project complete through and then into steady state and then become part of the culture of a company. And that's what excited me. So, yes, it was a natural progression, I think, and I think most consultants would also jump at the chance if they could get inside of a company and know that they could make a huge difference to the risk posture of a company. So, you started out working mostly in finance and and in the high-tech sectors as a consultant, and then you went as the the CISO at LexisNexis, but then you moved into the media and entertainment industries in a totally different sector in, in a lot of ways. What was the draw there? What made you do that? Well, it was a natural progression from uh, being consultant in finance to going to Lexus. They didn't have financial products, but they had a lot of PII. They have a lot of personally identifiable information within their company. Um, Most people don't know them. They're very um, protected in the background, but they um, are providers to most of the big banks on personal information, credit card companies. That's where they get their information. Uh, Lexus has combined it. The second half of that is LexisNexis, and Lexis was the open source media uh, consolidator, so which led me down the M&E line. So when I left and P- New York Times reached out to me, they were both media, but their biggest challenge was PCI. Uh, they're a company that 80% of the revenue comes through credit cards, and they were having a bad day because they couldn't get through a, uh, an, a certification by a QSA, uh, and so it, it dragged me into New York Times. And then following you know, the, the nearly death knell of many of the news services around the world, at least the basically changing of their dynamic of how they sell news uh, instead of fixed papers to the online processes, um, I decided to leave New York Times, and that's when NBC reached out. So I think starting at LexisNexis and then the New York Times focused me perfectly to understand the difference in how you sell in risk management in lieu of compliance, and that's why NBC brought me in. So that, you know, the... I think what people are going to find interesting is the aspect of being able to sell as a CISO, right? Those, those soft skills, those influence, persuasion, and negotiation skills. How important is that, do you think, in these top positions? Essential. Essential. I teach, I teach the master's course up at Northeastern University for uh, students that I think aspire someday to be CISOs. And I teach the capstone course, which is the symposiums for 14 weeks. And we cover all different topics. And one of the most important things I teach them is the importance of developing those soft skills and the the importance of developing that translation skill. If you go in talking tech to a business or even infotech to infosec security to a business, they just gloss over their eyes. They get the 10,000 mile stare. They have no idea what you're talking about. When was the last time uh, you thought that a CFO understood what a SQL is or what SQL injection is? If you use the standard terms that we use in information security to a business, they just write you off as another one of those geeks that they have to deal with. Right. 
Right. So you have to, you have to learn to speak their language and make it understandable to them. Speaking the language of the business is absolutely essential to your success, no doubt about it. So media and entertainment, when people think about the media and entertainment industries, they think about them as being one of the last industries to actually recognize this, you know, cybersecurity as a real material risk to their company. So is that true, do you think? And, you know, why is that if it is? And man, what an uphill battle that must be for you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and especially media entertainment since it's such a broad area. Um, if you think about it from a TV perspective, all their product is released to worldwide consumption, you know, and so the only thing they really worry about is protecting that pre-release data. And then because it's satellite, and you very rarely read anything about challenges to satellite, satellites and security was just not thought of. Movies, movies focused on piracy. They didn't focus on security. Plus, movie files are petabyte in size nowadays. They're big, huge digital files, and everybody believes if you're going to steal one of those, then obviously you'll see the petabytes going out of a company versus the way that you see you know, a small file or a small piece wow. of information go out of a company. Interesting. Now, parks were naturally, you know, parks were included because NBC was film, TV, parks, sports, Fandango, golf, news. Parks were also included in this. And I think parks was naturally secure and, and they had a natural security the way they did business because of the life and safety issues with a, with, a, with a roller coaster ride. You know, if a roller coaster ride shuts down, you never want it to shut down in the middle of a circle. It's doing a circle run and you don't want it to shut down and, and lock when it's upside down completely. So they've always understood that life and safety issues are first. Plus, they also had the PCI protections because they have millions of credit card issues. So there's not a lot of specific compliance issues across the media and entertainment space. It was here and there. And where they had compliance issues, I think they were better in understanding risk. But it was bringing it to the forefront for the rest of the businesses. So things like the Sony breach. Uh, the TV5 Mond breach, the HBO breach, these were all resonating with the businesses. Each time it happened, their reflection was there by the grace of God go I. <laughs> right, right. So I think a lot of companies go through some serious growing pains when they start realizing that cybersecurity really is a tier one material risk to their business. In a lot of ways, maybe the most significant material risk to their business. So when a company hires on its first CISO, what are some of the issues that you see for both the CISO and the company? Well, I think the first one is uh, it's the education issue. It, you, you have to educate them. Um, you have to educate to the employees, but then you have to actually educate for the employees it, it themselves. You're in there trying to change a culture. And it's not just the employees. It's management. It's the executive board. It's the board of directors. And you have to educate them on what a CISO brings. The CISO doesn't walk in the door, hopefully, hopefully, doesn't walk in the door and assume all risk for the company because it, much of it is out completely outside of their purview. It's the business's responsibility. It's the technology group's responsibility. The CISO comes in and oversees and identifies strategic ways to address that risk for the company, but they shouldn't be assuming that risk. A lot of young CISOs that I see make that mistake by going in and thinking, I'm in charge, great. And if the business can pass on that risk to someone, trust me, they will do it in a heartbeat. You know, so they have to balance the ability to manage the risk with making sure the risk is appropriately placed in the business. And when the business decides that they're going to put up a website and have absolutely no security to the website, that business owner is making a decision about his career and his future. 
it shouldn't be put on the security guy that says that that's now your responsibility to protect it because I don't want to do that. That's not an option. When I get into New York Times, the, the quote was always, uh, PCI, you can decide not to process credit cards. How do you think that business would run if they returned to cash and check-based um, systems? And, and it wouldn't run. They would have lost customers in the millions or in the hundreds of thousands. So you have to make sure they understand it's their responsibility. They can make the decision not to comply with PCI, but as a result of that, there'll be substantial business loss or business impact. And, and that's the big challenge I see for CISOs going in is they come crashing through the doors many times thinking, I'm in charge, I can do it. And they inadvertently assume a lot of risk and a lot of responsibility for themselves, which they don't have, you know, the, they, they don't have the ability to impact that particular business operation. So, Mike, we got to take some time to go to commercial break. We've got to pay the bills. But we'll be right back to pick your brain about a whole bunch of different cybersecurity topics. I've got a whole bunch of stuff here I want to ask you. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, one of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the media and entertainment industry, Mr. Mike Higgins. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology 
to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, one of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the media and entertainment industry, Mr. Mike Higgins. Mike, so we were talking about on, on the first segment some of the challenges that uh, companies face uh, when, they, you know, when they come in and they have their first CISO and things like that. What was the first challenge to overcome for you as a CISO? Um, I, I think the biggest challenge, the first challenge when you are well, going in, especially as a first-time CISO to an organization where they've never had a CISO before and maybe they've had a security department, is you have to overcome the perception that the chief security officer or chief information security officer is also the chief no officer. Um, when I inherited the folks at NBC and before that um, New York Times and even before that LexisNexis, I had to train all my folks that they were never allowed to say no. I was the only one that was allowed to say no, and I did it very, very rarely. Usually what I said was, yes, but, and that's what our job is. We're supposed to be encouraging and enhancing the business. We're not supposed to be stopping the business. If your business is doing anything from retail operations to media entertainment and you're telling everybody no all the time, no to no new technologies, no to, you know, no remote operations, no to whatever it is, you know, you're just going to kill the business. And I think inadvertently security officers over the years had been doing that. And so the rep was out. So now you have to undo the rep. And these are folks that are experienced. They've dealt with security people at some level in the past. And that's why you had even more than the CIO had, you had the, the shadow IT going on. Um, and, and to overcome that, you had to show that not only could you be a value to the company and be particularly value to the business, but you could actually enhance the business and reduce their overall risk if they talk to you and talk to you often. You know, I think this is so true. I mean, I think CISOs more and more have to really understand it's not enough just to say your business aligned, right? You really have to be business aligned. Speak the language of the business. You have to have business acumen. You have to be a conduit to their success and not be an obstacle and actually facilitate the success of their mission. I, I really, you know, I find that a lot of a lot of sisters out there, I mean, you just can't put that sort of speech in your strategy and, and not really follow up on it because the business sees right through it, right? I mean, they know right away yep. whether you're feeding them a line of crap, right? Yep, yep. Ask the business. Question the business. Ask the business leaders. Do an independent survey of the business leaders and find out and ask them directly. Do you think the security operations are aligned to your business goals? And you'll be surprised by the number of people that go, no, they're not. Um, you may think you are, but until you have the businesses 
telling people that my security department is aligned to my business, you're really not aligned. So is this how you overcome some of these issues and by doing these sort of informal surveys with these, you know, uh, with these business leaders asking them for their feedback? I mean, how do you, how do you overcome these issues when you come into these new senior executive positions? Well, um, I, I used to have a boss that, that he, his favorite um, description of his management style is he managed by walking around. Uh, in, in today's world, that is exactly true. Uh, I think you have to manage the expectations. You have to manage what they believe the CISO and the entire security department is bringing to their operations by communicating. And once you finish communicating, do it again. And once you finish doing it the second time, do it again. And you have to continuously talk to the business and make sure that you're completely aligned with their strategy and approach. And then you have to basically walk the walk at that point. You can go in and tell them all day long that you're aligned to them and your strategic uh, objectives are, are similar to theirs. But until you walk the walk with them and see some of the challenges and face some of the challenges they see as a business and share that responsibility with them, you're really not doing the job. And when you do that, finally, you're starting to be seen as a partner rather than an adversary. And once you're in partnership with the business, I think you'll have a very successful, you'll be a very successful CISO and you'll have a good security program. And then what happens is the ease of the annual budget. You know, the pendulum swings usually one way and, you know, after a breach or some uh, big communication uh, comes down from the board and the pendulum swings over and they start spending ungodly amount of money on security. And eventually that pendulum starts swinging back. But if you're aligned to the business and the business is actually asking you for these additional tools and they're underwriting the cost of it and they know they're underwriting the cost of it, that's when success really truly happens. So you've had a lot of senior positions and we always talk about on this show the, the visibility of the information security executive in terms of having exposure to the board, you know, having the board's ear. So in all the senior positions that you have held, did you interface with the board in all of these positions? What was that like? Yeah, not at NBC Universal because NBC is a Comcast company. So Myrna Soto, uh, another great security practitioner, um, she was the CISO of Comcast and that was her responsibility. So I would add a slide into her deck that she would present when she went to the board, uh, but that was separate and I only dealt with the executive committee at, at um, NBC Universal. At Lexus and the New York Times though, yes. Um, and I think the key there is it's got to be open and honest communications. Um, you've got to tell it like it is. You can't candy coat it. If you're just going to go up there and say everything is fine, nothing to see here, you know, it's the old, um, was it the Star Wars, the mind trick? These are not the uh, droids you're looking for. You know, you don't go up and, and, and do that. Uh, the second thing I think is, is they under, don't understand at all, like I said, the tech speak or information speak. Um, but you don't want to dumb it down either at the same time. Uh, you need to respect that these are intelligent, um, very, very worldly individuals that can get complex arguments. So you've got to take your complex operations and explain it to them in a manner that they can understand. So you have to talk business risk. And then you've got to get away from meaningful stati meaningless statistics. You have to use statistics and you have to use case histories um, very, very directly with them, but they have to be meaningful. To say that you blocked 3 million viruses this month, that's a meaningless number. You know, who knows? You know, the number could have been 30 million that you were, you were supposed to block and you're only for a blocking 10%. So you've right. got to get away from the meaningless statistics, which, you know, and, and how you do that is ask them. 
talk to them. Don't only go to the board once a quarter and once every half year, but open up communications channels as best you can with the board and ask them what they want to see. What are they most interested in? It shouldn't be a surprise to them. And then pre-brief them. Talk to them before the board meeting. They should never be a surprise. I'm never going to go into a board meeting and ask for another, you know, $2 million program to be approved. You know, that has been, all the grease has been spent on that going in before that meeting so that it's no surprise to everybody and everybody knows I'm asking for $2 million. And technically speaking, we already know the outcome of that discussion before I even walk in the door. So I think a lot of, when, when a lot of CISOs take over a position, they want to come in and they want to benchmark. They want to assess the company's cybersecurity defense in depth posture, which I think they should. And a lot of times this goes into a, a, a cyclical engagement model with a whole bunch of folks who do this on an annual basis. So how do you go about assessing a company's security posture when you first take over the top job? Yeah, I've done it a few times. So depending on the size of the company, it could be a 30 all the way up to, I believe, a 90-day assessment. And I base mine, and we can talk about it later, but I base mine on the NIST standard. I love the NIST standard uh, better than 7792, better than COBIT, better than PCI, better than any of the other standards. I like the NIST standard. Uh, it's understandable. It's understandable to the business even more so. Um, and then after I build that, I, I develop an assessment and gives me the six-month, one-year, and then a three-year plan after that. And then I start to execute it. Um, but before I execute it, the last thing I do is I usually go in and I sell the businesses. And by selling the business, I mean I explain to them what I'm going to do. I'm explaining what the priorities are. I'm not going into the that I'm going to put Fire Eyes in versus Apollo Alto. I'm telling them strategically what I'm doing in plain English and in business English so that they can understand what I'm doing. I'm protecting their external connections. I'm protecting their customers that they're connecting to. I'm protecting their uh, intellectual property or their uh, business intelligence operations. So I explain it all to them and then I listen to them because, you know, I ask for their advice. They don't know anything about security, but they got a lot of common sense. And after I do that, then I make sure that the business buys into the program because it's essential that as changes occur, which they will occur, and as changes in user behavior are required by whatever you're trying to change, um, you have to have the support of the uh, executives as well as the bottom up. You got to do top down and bottom up. So that's how I go about it, and that's the that's the plan I put in place. So you do this assessment, and then you have to use it, I guess, in terms of incorporating it into your strategy. How do you go about doing that? There's a bunch of different ways that you can do this, and you know it has to be aligned to your uh, budget cycle, of course, or else you're just you know spinning your wheels, but. How do you incorporate your assessment into the cybersecurity strategy? Yeah, like I said, it has to be, the acceptance is the key. So security has to be, in my mind, it has to be three things. It has to be transparent, it has to be acceptable, and it has to align to the business priorities, strategy, or goals. And, and different companies call them different things. But, you know, it's the business goals uh, for shorthand. So it has to be transparent. Um, you know, if you're changing someone's behavior and saying, uh, you know, you used to have a three-character password before I walked in here, and all of a sudden now you're going to have multi-factor uh, authentication based upon an adaptive authentication process, that is a substantial change. So you can't do that all in, you know, one bite. You don't need an elephant one bite. You slowly change it, and you make it as transparent as possible so that you don't surprise them one day. It doesn't go from three character to five character to seven character to nine character without telling them that, that each one of those changes are occurring. And then it has to be acceptable. You will get pushback. Uh, there's always pushback. 
Um, I try never to rely on compliance uh, as my rationale for doing anything. If I can't articulate and argue that this additional security process that I'm putting in place is reasonable uh, given the threats against the company, compliance is cheating, I think. Compliance, if you say, well, compliance, you know, the PCI makes me do it or, or SOX makes me do it or whatever it happens to be that makes me do it. You know, I really wish we could stay with three-character passwords. The answer is no, I, I, I never wish we could stay with three-character passwords. So I need to be reasonable in, in getting that acceptance from both the user as well as the managers. And then, like I said, I need to be able to articulate the entire program because this is it aligns with the business. The business is moving, the business decided we're going to do cloud. We're moving into the cloud. Okay, that means my security program needs to move, move into the cloud. We're going to uh, have an outreach. We're going to start a website and start selling some of the services and products we have. Okay, then I need to move my security into that website. Instead of having a brochure site that has B2B transactions, I need to move to a B2C. And everything I need to do aligns to what the priorities are and how that business is going to be successful. So now you got your assessment, you got your alignment, you got your prioritization, you're ready to execute. What's usually the first stumbling block you hit right out of the gate? (laughs) (laughs) It's always lack of communication. I told you before, it's communicate, communicate, communicate. Well, it should be communicate, 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 and just put dot, dot, dot after it. It just continue to do that. We're in a hurry generally, especially after you execute that first assessment of 30 to 90 days and develop your plan. You want to get out and you want to get some early wins. You want to go grab some of that low-hanging fruit. But what you can't forget to do is over-communicate and listen to the critics. And when I worked at LexisNexis, uh, I used to say that I, I love lawyers. I still say I love lawyers. But there are 3,000 lawyers at LexisNexis, 3,000 of them. And if you don't think they've got opinions, you know, every time I changed anything to do with the security process or procedure, I heard about it loud and clear. Hmm. So I made sure, and that's where I learned, you have to communicate. You can't fall victim to overconfidence that, oh, yeah, I can do this. This is easy. Isolationism, which the security department is notorious for becoming isolated and, you know, they know best and the people that are trying to advise them or the users, they don't really know what they're talking about, so we don't listen to them. So we only listen to our own people and they're endorsing what we're trying to do. And then finally, you know, management has got to live it. They've got to understand that, that what I'm doing is supported by management. So it's, it's, I, I can't deal with a manager that is undermining what we're trying to do because he's out there saying, well, I wish we didn't have to do it either. But, you know, you know what, you know what security is requiring. You know, you need to be able to communicate down to the point where they can also help you justify why you're doing things. So I feel like, you know, we've been asking the same question for 20 years in terms of do executives and companies in general really embrace security into their business? And I don't want to be presumptuous here by asking you the question and, and suspecting that you might say they don't, but if, if, if you don't think they do, why do you think that still is after like two decades of asking that same question? Yeah, I think we're, I think we're into it almost a, you know, going to be a century point still asking that same question. It's, yeah. it's, it's, security is disruptive. It's naturally disruptive because it's the antithesis to ease of operation, right? People, human beings want, if they're doing things in an A, B, C, D, E, F format, they don't want to all of a sudden do it in an A, B, C, D, EFGHIJK format. They want to they continue doing their operations the way they've always done their operations. Human beings hate change. 
human beings hate anything that's disruptive to what they believe is their natural course. And I, I think that's always going to be the case. And, and that goes for the human being at the lowest point on the assembly line to the guy sitting in the CEO's chair. Disruption is disruption and people hate disruption because in business, disruption spells money. Uh, it spells time. It spells energy. You have to do something you didn't previously do. Even if it's in what you believe is microseconds, it's still disruptive. Security affects all of everybody. It affects the users, the managers. It affects the technologists. It affects HR. It affects general counsel's office. It affects everybody. So you have to understand everybody's looking at it from their own parochial standpoint as well. So while you think, hey, you know, I'm going to have a multi-factor for any remote connection into my environment, it's mostly only going to follow and I'm going to only have to deal with the technologists. No, you have to deal with the HR. You have to deal with the business executives. You have to deal with everybody. So you have to look at each person's own ability. So you may be thinking, oh, since this is now a technology issue, I can be rather you know, uh, benign about the way that I adopt my multi-factor. No, all of a sudden you're going to have users that don't understand technology and don't understand security using your tools. So you have to be able to adapt to them as well. And then finally, like I said before, security has to be transparent. The more transparent, the better. Back in the day, I used to be, I was having an online before we had um, online blogs and discussions. I was having an online discussion with Vitsa Vemina, who was one of the grandfathers of the security space over at IBM. And, and my argument was security couldn't be transparent. His argument was security had to be transparent. And my argument was people will appreciate and be better educated about security if you put security in their face. You put up that warning screen that says you're about to connect here and, you know, everything you're doing is going to be monitored by Big Brother. Uh, you're going to be disruptive in your operations. You're going to require people to pick a really robust password so people will be thinking about security all the time. And what's happened over time is human beings, natural or nature has proven to be far more resilient than my desire to educate people. <laughs> right. They want the easiest way. Um, you know, look at the example of what happened in banking when we came up with uh, the multi-factor authentication in banking. Uh, the, the nine federal agencies all came out at the same time and said, everybody's got to put in two-factor authentication to a banking to protect the consumers. Every bank was pretty much ready, all big banks were pretty much ready with two-factor, but nobody wanted to do it first because the city rolled out two-factor. Do you don't think Bank of America would be running an advertisement? Still, single-factor to get into our environment. You know, you don't think the ease of operation was going to be a key determining factor of where consumers went to do business? So by mandating it federally, everybody had to do it, and then everybody was back on an equal playing field because security is disruptive. So I think I sense a lot of frustration around the industry right now. I think, you know, we're constantly getting hit. You know, some people see it as we're constantly losing. I've heard that lately. And I think a lot of people are looking for change. Let's do something different. Let's change our organizational constructs. Let's use different frameworks. Um, let's, let's use different models. Uh, is it better for security to be pushed up from the top down or from the bottom up? Um, I, I used to think that all you had to do is from the top down. Uh, and that was always because that's where budgets were decided. That's where you could get money to do and, and become more secure and reduce the risk for companies. But I've, I've learned over time that it's also got to be bottom up. You've got to work both ends of the spectrum. You can't expect to push security from the top down 
because executive support, even as important as it is to get budget and everything, if it's not being adopted, it's not changing the culture within the organization, it's going to fail. And you can't merely do it from the bottom up because, yes, but if you don't give me any money to do anything and I, I just change processes and procedures, they're not going to be permanent changes to processes and procedures. Uh, change has to be acceptable or old insecure habits will return. Users will do so even acknowledging they violate security because operations always trump security. Why do companies use insecure cloud applications to do their business? Because it's easy for the user. So there's a lot of that, and I think we'll discuss it in a few minutes, but there's a lot of that that are the big challenges, I think, going forward for security people and will continue to be challenges that we've got to address. All right, Mike, we've got to take a short break here to hear from our sponsors again, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Mike Higgins after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. 
I'm here with our special guest, one of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the media and entertainment industry, Mr. Mike Hagan. So, Mike, we're talking about the CISO role. And as an experienced CISO, what do you see as the challenges going forward, considering the way the industry is headed these days? I think it comes. It breaks down into three components. The first one is that I believe that as security becomes more complicated, it becomes more disruptive. Um, as I said before, think about identity management. Uh, we added passwords, which we had never had back in the old days. Then we went for password size. Then we added complexity. Uh, then we added password aging. And then we added two-factor, and now we've got adaptive multi-factor, whatever the <laughs> hell that is. And each one of those is more complex and takes more time. Uh, the second big issue, I think, is consumerism. Uh, as business strives to push consumer-grade products into their business faster, the challenge is for security to be toughened, but also just to flat catch up. Consumer-grade often implies less secure because they're not thinking about the impact. If you want to give up all your personal information, that's a personal issue with you. <laughs> but if I'm entrusting it to some third party, um, they better be using products that can keep my personal information, sensitive information, protected. And then finally, I think that the third one is just as it's always been. It's just new technology is always challenging. We went from mainframes and computer windows. I know most of your audience probably doesn't remember that, but that's the way we used to live. We used to push punch cards through a window, and you never even saw the computer. It was behind a, a big hidden door. And then we went to client server. Then we went to laptops. Then we've, we've gone to cell phones, virtualization, cloud. There's a never-ending increase in the complexity of security. And there's always seems to be a decreasing time to adapt security for these new technologies. Security is one of the last features that is designed into some of these technologies. And I think the increasingly shorter periods of time that we have to secure the technologies is starting to impact the ability to exploit that technology as fast as you can do it. So you heard me talking about Matt Coleman's in the beginning of the show. We had him on last week to talk about cybersecurity talent. And it just seems to me that people are always the issue here in cybersecurity. I mean, talent's just hard to find. How do you solve that problem in a place like Manhattan or some of these different geolocations? Like the difference between Texas and the difference between Manhattan, I mean, is. Yeah. Big difference there, right? I mean, what do you do about this? Yeah, uh, Matt's a rock star. His ability to find talent in um, uh, this pool of, of people that are very happy in their jobs, being well compensated, especially in Manhattan, is one of the toughest challenges I face. Finance can literally buy all the good people in New York City. Hmm. Um, the challenge is then how do you find the right person for the right job and keep them satisfied? I think the solution has to be job fit. You must match the person and the job. It's not a matter of going in and becoming a security analyst at a big bank or a big media company or a big finance, uh, a big finance company. Uh, it, it's a matter of keeping the employee happy and making sure that they're doing forensics work or doing incident response work or doing third-party consulting work. Um, you have to make sure that if he's, that you keep the employee happy because I, I just saw a study. In fact, I think it was out yesterday on LinkedIn that if you have a boss that you believe is a partner instead of a boss that is, a, is, is, a, is the manager of your well-being, um, you can literally accept um, less of a salary uh, by going to that job because job satisfaction means so much to people. So you've got to check for that job satisfaction. 
And then you have to change that job immediately. If you've got a guy that is an incident response person and he's in doing forensics work, um, it may be a good fit, but it may not be a good fit. He may like the action. He may like the changes in the environment. He may not like day-to-day just looking at uh, uh, code to try to figure out what's right or what's wrong or where, where an intrusion happened. If he's an analyst or the e-discovery person, it, it just it changes so much that you have to make sure that you're aligned to the satisfaction of the employee. And then in security, I think it's always listen to opinions as a boss. Part of keeping him happy, every boss should understand, listen to them. You have to listen to your team. Never think that you know best. Um, you know, I, I always say I'm the dumbest person in the room, and quite candidly, most of the time I am. Um, but you have to ask those stupid questions because everybody learns when you do that. Some of the best ideas and solutions I have ever implemented came from the ranks. Non-traditional solutions don't mean they're not acceptable. So, so we, we, we talk about solution people, sets right now. I mean, yep. what do you think about all the great security technologies being introduced almost daily now to us? <laughs> I mean, this is crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if I hear one more person say their, their product does machine learning or artificial intelligence, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to scream. Uh, I think those are now marketing terms and have no basis in actual capability. Uh, ML or AI is, if it's in your sales pitch, if you come to me, you better be prepared to discuss um, the degree of which you're, what you're doing and how you're doing it and not just using the words. Don't let marketing throw terms at you as a salesperson that you don't fully understand. And don't say, well, I'll bring a technologist in to explain it. The terms are now so overused, uh, I think they, they lack any meaning anymore. Um, intelligence uh, is the second one that's driving me crazy. Intelligence is, n- is not data and is not information. Intelligence, by its very definition, is applied knowledge. Be ready to justify what part of your product is intelligence and not just data and information that you're throwing over the transom at me. <laughs> so those things drive me crazy today. That's a good point. That's a really good point. So look, I mean, it's hard to keep up with this changing environment, I think. I mean, how do you stay current with all the new security technologies, but the, the threats, the risks, the, the, the digital transformation that's happening out there, everywhere you look. I mean, how do you yeah. keep up with all this happening at once? Um, I, I, the first thing is, if you're engaged, then you've got to be constantly reading. I think you should have a, a daily reading list of, of sources that you have. One of my favorites is Cymru. Uh, the company puts out a daily list of news articles, you know, five or six, but they're usually pretty well selected and meaningful to what I do. Uh, and then listen and ask questions anytime you're in the meeting. Like I said, I'm usually the dumbest person in the room, so I have no problem asking questions. How do you think I found out what blockchain was or cryptocurrency is? Because I had the young techies who were thriving on learning more and more about it. Okay, now explain it to me. And, and that's how I did it. Then I want to meet with the young vendors and products folks. I was a consultant for years, so I shouldn't put this out there. But, you know, I'll take a meeting with anybody. I'll give you 15 to 30 minutes of my time to learn about what your vendor, what you're doing and what your product does and how you differentiate yourself within the marketplace. And, and that has led to many wasted 15 to 30 minute periods of time. But, right. but it's also occasionally there's a diamond in the rough and it's like, well, you do have a unique, true, unique approach to the problem. And, and that taught me a lot. Maybe I'm not believing that you're the right guy, that your product is going to take it, but it's telling me that that's a direction that we as an industry have to work. Then I talked to my peers. Um, I started when I was in media at NBC. Well, before that, even at New York Times, I started the media entertainment ISAC. And talking to your peers, 
I, I think is critical. What are their experiences? How are these products doing within what you're using them for? You've implemented it. You know, it just is critical. Um, attend uh, what I've lovingly referred uh, as my group therapy sessions. Go to peer dinners. In New York, it's not hard. In fact, in New York, sometimes I'm, I'm told I could really go to dinner every single night a week on a different vendor. Uh, but the big part that I go to dinners is I select it based upon who my peers are and for listening to them what their challenges are. Only other CISOs know your pain. Uh, embrace the sharing and share often. But remember, always remember, Vegas rule, or if you want to call it Chatham House rules. We can talk freely in these forums because that's where they stay. That's where the information is. trusted. It's trusted. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and if you can't trust another CISO, Oh, we'll, we'll be to our entire industry. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, a lot of people are talking about, you know, different frameworks. We talked about different organizational constructs, different models, different approaches. A lot of people are talking about the frameworks now and how do we assess towards the frameworks? How do you even know what framework to assess against? I mean, we have NIST, we have ISO 27001, we have COVID, PCI. There's a, there's a lot of frameworks popping up all over the place out there. Which one do you use and do, do we have to use only one? Can we use a combination of, of frameworks when we assess our environment? Yeah, and again, this comes down to how can you explain it? And if you're only explaining controls to a business, you're back in the compliance realm and they will only do what's necessary within the control. They're not looking at a risk reduction. Um, I think all standards are good, but I think NIST was pretty much the first standard to stress detection and response equal to protection even though it's identity protection, judgment, response, and re recovery, that the fact that detection and response were an equal number of controls to protection, not combined, but individually, I think really says a lot about the standard. PCI has 152 controls, 85% of protection-based. NIST standard stresses detection and response, realistically, because not 100% of protection is, is possible. 99% of the companies can't uh, only do protection, and that has to be good enough for them. COVID stresses protection, 81% of their controls. ISO, it's 92%. You will be penetrated. You will be breached. You will be disrupted. How you best minimize the impact of that breach, penetration, disruption, is what I think is the differentiator between a good security program and a great security program. So, Mike, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate spending the time with us. I hope you come back often. This is George, great. I had a great time. Thank you. All right, folks, we've run out of time once again already. It seems to just go quicker and quicker every week. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get their other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.